would you join me, Matthew 18. And as you're turning there, uh, those of you who are watching online, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I want to, so you, you see a Roman number one. In a minute, we're going to look at some verses. So I'm going to come back to the verses and read that. There is a first note. And so really, I want to go ahead and say that because it's really the context uh, that we're getting ready to read in, okay? So the book of Matthew, which we've been in for quite a while, has five discourses, major discourses. So Jesus is always talking. My Bible here is not a red letter edition where when Jesus is talking, those are in red letters, mine are not. If you have that, you see lots of red all through the book of Matthew. But there's going to be five places where it's just like super condensed and not a lot of black letters in there making commentary about narrative Uh, Chapter 18, coming up, that we're starting, is one of those five places. It's the fourth out of five. Remember the other ones? Chapters 5 through 8, there was the Sermon on the Mount. That's the Lord just teaching and teaching and teaching. Chapter 10, the Lord was getting ready to send the 12 out on a short-term missions trip that he had empowered them specially for. And so before that, he gives a long discourse in chapter 10. Chapter 13, the Lord describes what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And he does so by using multiple, just layering parables one on top of another so that was a long discourse and now we get to chapter 18 is the fourth one go ahead and write their first note I think we'll be able to put it on the screen chapter 18 is the main theme here's the running theme throughout is the Lord is going to show us how to deal with sin in our relationships so that's the theme of chapter 18 I I don't know yet if we're going to do this in four weeks or five how long it'll take but we're dealing with a common theme how to deal with sin in our relationships. So the scene is the Lord has gone north. There's been a great confession that he's the Christ, son of the living God. He's come back south. A few things have happened. They've now made their way back to Capernaum. They're on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Guys, as I said last week, the best I can tell, the movements between verse 20, 21 to 22, verse 22, and then the movements from verse 23 to 24 makes me think, without going over the reasons why, we are now within two to three weeks of the Lord's cross. I mean, we're getting very, very close. They're about to go to Jerusalem. That's the context. And so here he is uh, in a house in Capernaum, and that's where the scene, uh, linking us back, watch verse one. So here, let's read our text now. You see where it says, at that time. So last week we saw that Peter was asked a question about, does his master not pay the temple tax? He's going to go ask Jesus about that question. Jesus interrupts him with a question about taxation, and we talked about that ultimately. Jesus doesn't have to pay the temple tax because he's the son of God. It's God's house. Dads don't make their sons pay taxes. Jesus is free. Nevertheless, he still is going to pay the tax so that he doesn't offend other people, though he doesn't have to. And he sends Peter out to catch a fish, and that fish is going to have a shekel that's going to be the exact amount that's needed to pay both Peter and Jesus' tax. Verse number 1, chapter 18. Here we go. You ready? Going five verses today. At that time, the idea still in the house in essence, the disciples came to Jesus. So the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? This is what's on their mind. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In a moment, I'm going to circle back, and I want to say this. We're not going to compete with Matthew's version of verse 1. We're not going to contradict Matthew's version of verse 1. But that the way it reads, you need to complement it with the other gospels. And so I don't always do that with Mark and Luke. John's kind of separate, does his own thing. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, covering a lot of the same incidents uh, in some of, of the same order, but covering a lot of the same material, slightly different. And this time we are going to borrow in a moment from Mark in particular because he sheds more light on verse 1. Look at it one more time, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. I think the idea here, this child, guys, is going to be very little, like a toddler, like two, three, maybe four years old. Calling to him a child. We don't know who this child is. I'll be, I'll be honest. First time I read it, I'm thinking, this is probably Peter's house in Capernaum. Is this Peter's little boy? We know that Peter has a mother-in-law and he has a wife. According to 1 Corinthians 9, Peter has a wife. Does he have a little knucklehead running around? So is, is verse 2 as simple as, hey, where's the little man? Where's the little man? Little man, come over here. Come here, buddy. Hey, buddy. Hey. Hey. You love Uncle Jesus, don't you? Yeah. All right, good. You do me a favor? Yeah. I want you to just stand right there for a minute, buddy. Oh, okay. Look at verse 2. Calling him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, and he gets serious, truly, I say to you, he's talking to the disciples, truly, I say to you, unless you turn, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Come here, buddy. You stand right there. Truly I say to you, unless you turn, turn, you're doing this, unless you turn and become like a child, little children, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, whosoever humbles himself... Like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's the answer to your question. You want to know who's the greatest? Yeah, who's the greatest? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I will go and tell you this because Matthew doesn't cover it again. They don't always cover everything. They cover truth and they cover a section as the Holy Spirit leads them. Look at verse 5 one more time. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But the other gospels show us that Jesus also adds, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So if you receive and welcome this little child, you're receiving and welcoming me, and you're receiving and welcoming the Father who sent me. And so that's our text today. And let's notice three things this morning. Actually, yeah, three things this morning. Number one. The disciples are consumed with greatness. I'll be honest with you. I've, I have noticed how our society, and I, I'm, I'm wondering, is it something that's unique to our society? We're constantly seeing these lists. This, I watch a lot of sports, so we have this term running around all the time, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Who's the greatest? Of, and everybody's always vying. Whatever sport there is, is this the greatest of all time? We're constantly consumed with who's the greatest. Well, this is not new. They're consumed with it to the point that it is very sinful. Remember, the Lord is dealing in this whole chapter on a theme of sin that comes into our relationships, and he kind of kicks it off with dealing with kind of the primary sin of all the sins, and that's the sin of pride. They want to know who is the greatest. Hold your spot here because I'm going to do this twice. Flip over to Mark chapter 9. It's just a few pages away, Mark chapter 9, and hold your spot there when you get a chance. If you have another marker because we'll come back again later, I do want you to look at, I told you we'd see, add a little more color, a little more flavor to complement what Matthew writes. Look at Mark chapter 9 and watch what he writes because he gives some added material. Because Matthew's version, it, though true, can make our mind go a, a, a different direction. So you're in Mark 9. Hear Mark Matthew one more time. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That sounds nice and broad, but here's the problem. Verse number 33 of Mark 9. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them. So you see, it doesn't actually start with them asking him this question. He's going to draw this question out. He asked them. So if you'll picture it again, forgive me, I read too much between the lines. The Lord is there chopping up some vegetables. Let's say that, but let's just imagine he's chopping up some vegetables, he's working. Peter has probably caught the fish, paid the tax, maybe he's on his way back and somewhere. Maybe they got together, but here come the 12 back to, I think, Peter's house. They finally make it in when he was in the house. Verse 33 says, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? I don't know how this went down, but the Lord knows that they've been talking. Is it as simple as the vibe that he's picking up? Is he sensing some tension? Or is he drawing on his omniscience as God the Son? So he asked, verse number 33, what were you discussing on the way? Look at verse 34. But they kept silent. Nah. What y'all talking about? He knows what they're talking about according to Luke, but they don't want to say it, so he's not going to let it go. He keeps asking apparently. So they finally break their silence, verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. In fact, listen, Luke chapter 9 verse 46 adds this phrase. They weren't just arguing generally about who's the greatest. They were arguing about which which of them was the greatest. So now we know why they're so silent. What you you fellas talking about when you were on on the way over here? Nothing. No, nothing. That's good. What you cooking? No, no. What y'all talking about? Oh, we were just talking about, you know, you know, the greatest. Be more specific. Yeah, we've been arguing. We've been arguing about which of us is the greatest. And so they're shamefully silent. So now back to Matthew 18. Would you look at that with that kind of in, in context? And here's what it seems like has taken place. This, Matthew's transaction of it, is that they are, in essence, asking Jesus to finish and decide, settle their debate. So which of us is the greatest? Guys, i got to tell you, this is very frustrating. This is frustrating for me to read, and it's probably frustrating for you. Just when we think they're starting to get some headway and to get a little bit of understanding, you remember? It seems like they're starting to grasp what Jesus has been teaching. Back in chapter 7, verse 22, the Lord for the second time very clearly says that he's going to be delivered over to the hands of sinful men They will kill him, and he will be raised from the dead. I think they don't even really notice that he's going to be raised from the dead. They really hear that he's going to be killed because the end of verse 23 says they're greatly distressed. Watch. They're greatly distressed that their Savior, their their Lord, their Master is going to be killed. They're starting to understand this. But there's this thing called preconceived notions. And here they've learned some new theology. They're supposed to have updated their model of theology. But a few days goes by, and they've defaulted back to an old way of thinking. Their question, verse number, chapter 18, verse 1, is not broad like this. So, Lord, here's our question. Whenever you set up your kingdom on earth, and I mean it's consummated visibly where you're on the throne in Jerusalem, whenever that is, be it in a month or two from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 2,000 years from now, which is where we're at, or 3,000 years from now, whenever that's done, of all the saints, which ones of them will be the greatest? That's not their question. Their question, in essence, is they know something big is coming. 
They know the, the Lord's tone is lend, lending them to believe that something momentous is about to happen. This is not going to be the typical trip to Jerusalem. Something massive is getting ready to take place, and they are now defaulting back to their former way of thinking. We're going to Jerusalem, and he's getting to set up his kingdom, and so they're already starting to vie and debate and argue about which one of them is the greatest. I wish I could tell you that what Jesus says in verses 2, 3, and 4, and 5 settles it, and they forgo all the pride and get back on point, but it doesn't. Write this note. Unfortunately, sadly, the disciples' deep desire and craving to be seen as great plagued them all the way until the cross. We're going to see it. We're in chapter 18. It won't be long. We'll be in chapter 20, and we're going to see James and John's mother vying for her sons to be on his right and on his left. Luke chapter 22, we'll not see that necessarily, but in the actual Passion Week, the disciples are still arguing about who's the greatest. John chapter 13, one of the main reasons the Lord washes the disciples' feet is to show them that if you want to be great, you have to serve, and that's one of the points that he's making here. I'm just thinking about human nature, and I don't know the dynamic. I'm reading between the lines again. Probably some of the disciples are arguing that they are the greatest, but I dare say that others are the disciples because we, we pick things up. They've noticed Peter, James, and John seem to be kind of specialized, and they get in on some things the others do not. And so some of them are probably arguing that that one or that one. I dare, we don't know, but I would assume that Peter's the main one that some are putting forth. And Peter, for all we know, may be agreeing with that and accepting that. I mean, he did just get his taxes paid. Those three got to go up on the mountain. Peter got to walk on water. Peter, back in chapter 16, got this heavy commendation, and he's told he's going to be given the keys to the kingdom, but the Lord's going to make a point. Don't go by what you see here. Don't go by what you see right now. Number two, would you notice this this morning? Verses 2, 3, and 4, Jesus calls us to be like children. Jesus calls us. Obviously, he calls them, and I'm extending that. He's calling us to be like children. So they want to know who is the greatest, and in full context, which of us is the greatest is going to be the greatest when you set up your kingdom. And so the Lord pulls this little boy over, gathering around. I'm getting ready to give you the answer to your question, and here's what he says. You have to be like children, but there's two parts. I'm going to split this thought. First, let's look at verse number three, and here's the lesson. We must be like a child to be saved. You must be like a child to be saved. Look carefully at verse 2. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Get the context. You ready? So, Lord, which one of us is the greatest in all the kingdom? Here's what he's saying in essence. Right now, none of you are tracking toward greatness. None of you are tracking toward greatness. In fact, before you assume that you're going to be great in the kingdom, you guys need to make sure, are you even going to get into the kingdom? Will you even get? So, Jeff, are you saying that this passage is saying that none of the disciples at this point are true followers of the Lord, and if they died right then, they would go to heaven? I dare say some of them were, but apparently some of them are not. We know that Judas will not end up being saved, and it may seem like this is hinting that not all of you are yet saved. Look at verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he brings a little boy in, and he says, you want to be great, you want to go to heaven, you have to become like this child. Now, here's my question for you. Don't answer out loud. What does that mean? That you have to become like a child. Notice the text. Unless you turn, let's be a turning, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
This is a tough one for me because the text does not say what Jesus means about how we are to become like children. So what does that mean? You say, well, do we think like Nicodemus? We have to go back and become little small people again? We can't do that. You have to, can't turn back the clock. So what does it mean? Does he mean this? You better turn and become as innocent as a little child if you want to even enter the kingdom of heaven. You better stop worrying about greatness. You better turn and become as innocent as a little child if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that what he's saying? Uh, let's answer that with a quick little raising of the hands. I know there are some of you. If you have ever in your life been a school teacher, would you please raise your hand? Raise your hand. Oh, y'all look around. I, I've known this about our congregation. It's kind of uh, out of proportion. We have a lot of teachers. My hand would go up, right? If you've ever... Now... If any of you have ever been a parent, how many of you are parents, would you raise your hand? This is the vast majority of us are parents. So you guys help me answer. Is this what Jesus is saying? If you want to go to heaven, you better become as innocent as a little child. No. Why? Because children are, they're not innocent. They're little bitty sinners. They're little hellions. That's what they are. They have the same sin nature as we do. So nobody who's been a school teacher or a parent should ever think, oh, Jesus is saying we got to go back and become innocent like a little child. No, he's not saying be innocent. So now I'm still stuck at this point. What does he mean? What is he saying? What is it about a child that we have to be like? I wish, boy, if this was Wednesday night, I'd pause and give you three or four minutes and have you write down your ideas, but it's not, so we'll move on. Write down two possible things that I'm going to propose to you. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to touch them confidently. I'm going to say them confidently because I believe, though he doesn't spell it out, I think the rest of Scripture points out that this is what he's pointing out. Number one, have you ever noticed that children, we're talking about two, three, four-year-olds, believe what their parents say? Children believe what their parents say. They just believe what their parents say. And I think that's what the Lord's saying. You better become like a little child. Like a child believes what its parent, what its parent says. You better believe what the Heavenly Father says. Number two, children is a big one. How do we need to become like a little child? Children realize they are dependent upon their parents. Children know they're dependent upon their parents. Children believe what their parents say. And I think that's what the Lord is saying. We have to realize our dependency and we have to believe what God the Father says. Listen to how Piper words that thought, the second thought that you just wrote. Let's deal with it first. He writes the following. So catch it. He says, children may have all kinds of faults. Remember, here's the context. You must be like a child. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He writes, children may have all kinds of faults, but in a normal, healthy family, they trust their daddy to take care of them. Get the next two sentences. He says, they do not lie awake wondering where the next meal is coming from. They do not fret in the stroller that the sky is turning gray. Think about that. When your child was two, three, four years old and you put him to bed at 8, 830, how many times did you go into their room and they're still awake at 10 o'clock and, and you peek in just to make sure, what you doing awake? I just can't sleep. Why? I'm just thinking how I'm going to feed us tomorrow. I, I just don't know how I'm going to put food on the day. They are not thinking about putting food on the day. Never have you seen a little two or three. What's that frown on your face in the stroller for? What's the matter? Do you need a sucker? Do you want some candy? No, I'm just noticing that the sky is turning dark and you adults don't seem to be doing anything about it. I'm formulating a plan. They don't do that. 
He is so on point. What is it? They're taking that for granted. That's your job. That's not my job. He continues. The child is by its very position lowly and lives by instinctive confidence. They're both lowly and non-great by the standards of worldly acclaim. And they're happy, anxiety-free, and confident that everything they need will be provided. I think that's what the Lord is saying. You want to go to heaven just as a little child is confident that its parents are going to meet its needs. My question for you this morning, sitting there right now, are you 100% confident that your heavenly father is doing and will do everything that it takes to provide all you need for eternity? Are all of your eternal needs met and already decided in, in the father, in Christ? Are you trusting them? Do you recognize your dependence? Children recognize their dependence, but listen, it goes further. This is a slight little nuance. They not only know they're dependent, they are very willing to be dependent. They're very willing to receive. They like, you and I may struggle. Like Again, this, this has happened, I guarantee you, in this group this week, someone tried to give someone in here something, and it made you very uncomfortable. Like, why? Because you're calculating, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay you back. Kids don't do that. Little kid, they'll let you give to them. On and on. You just keep giving, giving. They know I'm the receiver. You're the giver. That's how they look at mom and dad. I'm the taker. You're the giver. Is that your mindset toward God? Have you ever realized you have to do all the giving because I bring nothing to the equation? If you don't reach that point, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 3. We touch this just quickly. Look at verse 3. Truly I say unto you, unless you turn and become. Y'all help me out. Unless you turn. Unless you turn. I hope somebody here gets this thought. Unless you turn. Now, I'm not telling you that this is this word, but I'm telling you that this concept correlates with the word that we have talked about multiple times here in this book when we talked about John the Baptist and Jesus' message. The Lord says, unless you turn and become like little children, you're not, not even going to enter the kingdom. What word am I thinking of? It starts with letter R. Repent. So I'm not saying that this is the word for repentance, but it is the idea there needs to be a turning. So something has to change. Now, right now, somebody, or in the future, somebody's going to listen to this and say, oh, there's one of those preachers saying that you have to change your life and live better if you want to go to heaven. Hang on. What has to change in repentance? What's the first thing that changes is our what? Our mind. There must be a changing of the mind, and that's what the Lord is saying. The word turn here speaks of the repentance that is absolutely necessary for salvation. And it's a repentance, a changing, a turning of the mind. You think this way, and the Lord is telling them, you guys are worried about how great you are. You better turn and start thinking this totally other direction. If you're taking notes, listen to this. Because we're all born with a sinful nature, it twists and warps our mind. We are all born with what I would call a default mindset. I'm telling you guys, you let someone, if they could survive, you let them be born on an island apart from any other human being, if they could survive, theoretically, be reared up, it wouldn't take long, they would realize there's a God from nature and that they, are, they have sinned and they've, they've angered this God by their sin. They're going to do wrong things on that island, even by themselves, And they're going to come to a conclusion. They're going to start thinking a certain way because it is our default mindset. And I'm going to tell you, it is a damning mindset. And it's this. We're born with it. We're born thinking this way. I must do good 
if I'm going to go to a good place. I must do good if I'm going to go to heaven. What Jesus is saying is you absolutely had better turn from that way of thinking. Before a per- I'm not going to pull two chairs up here because I don't have time. Some of you have seen us do the two chairs thing. Listen carefully. Before a person can become a true Christian, before that, something has to happen first. That person must realize that they cannot save themselves. You have to turn from an attitude that says, I must do good if I'm going to go to a good place. You must turn from that. Why? Because none of us are good. If you and I did not commit another sin from this time forward in our life, which is not going to happen, we've already done all the damage. Our our ship has sailed as far as being able to be considered good. So you better turn from that way of thinking. You cannot become a true Christian until the first thing you do is stop trusting yourself. And that's the lesson the Lord has given the disciples. They're here adding up and stacking up their virtues, and the Lord is saying, you've forgotten the main thing that I taught. I'm just wondering, does anyone here, and I know you're writing a note, but can you do two things at once? Do you remember the Beatitudes back in chapter Five, six, and seven, Sermon on the Mount. There were eight Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, the Lord is teaching that these are the truly blessed people. And I mean like these are the people who have the truly good life. They have the good life. They have the best life. These are the people that if you ever want to envy someone, you'd better envy these people because they have the eternally good, happy, blessed life. Does anybody here remember what the very first... The attitude is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Remember that? That's what they're forgetting. They're thinking of their assets. They're thinking of the virtues that they're going to bring into the kingdom. The Lord's saying, you better stop wondering how great you are and start realizing that you are poor. Y'all help me out. I'm looking for a specific word. Do you remember? It's been a couple of years now, I realize. Way back in chapter 5, the word poor actually means what level of poverty? We use the word bankrupt. You know what that means? The Lord is saying, blessed, the good life, to be envied, the person to be envied, is the one who realizes that they are poor in spirit. This is a person that's not poor-spirited. It's not the person that's just, like, financially poor. It's not talking about that. It's a person who looks at themselves and says, spiritually, what I have spiritually, my resources, assets, put them all together. If I'm going to come try to get into heaven and I bring them to the Lord, I literally am bankrupt. I, like, don't have anything to offer. That's the first thing you better do. Once you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt, then now you are ready to forsake trying to save yourself, and now you're ready to put your faith and trust in the one who actually can save you. I think that's what the Lord is saying in verse 3. Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never even enter. I added the word enter. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I added the word ever. So number one, so here we are again. The disciples are all caught up, consumed by greatness. The Lord says you must become like little children. I said there's two thoughts. Thought number one is that you must become like a child to be saved. Children, it it appears the Lord is talking about two qualities. I just talked extensively about the first one. Give me a moment here. Watch. The first one is the child realizes its dependence 
Do you see the second one you wrote down a while ago? You actually wrote it first. A child believes what its parent says. A child believes what the parent says. So first thing, before you can get saved, is you have to realize I'm dependent. I don't add anything to this. I'm totally a taker. And then secondly, you have to now believe what not an earthly parent says, but what God the Father says. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do something. Mark chapter 18. Put your spot there. Go to Romans 3. You're going to need to go there because this is not going to be on the screen. None of this will be on the screen. Flip over to Romans chapter 3 because I want to make a quick point. To go to heaven, we have to realize our dependency. We bring nothing to the equation. And we have to believe what our Heavenly Father says about how to be saved. So what does he say? I can't develop this. can't go into it. We preached on it a few years ago. The messages, I think, are on the website if you want to look at this. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 21. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known, apart from the law. So there is a righteousness from God that we can have because you have to be righteous to go to heaven. There's a righteousness of God that's been manifested, but it's manifested apart from the law. Not this, I've got to do good. Nope, I'm not good. I never can be good on my own. So we're forsaking that idea. In fact, he even says, although the the law and the prophets bear witness to it, so it's separate from the law and the prophets, but the law and the prophets of the Old Testament both say, yes, that's the true way. What he's getting ready to say, that's the true way to get saved. So how do we get saved? This New Revelation, where he says, now, as of the writing of Romans in A.D. 56, now the righteousness of God's been manifested. Apart from the law, verse 22, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, therefore, again, one more time, the righteousness of God. How am I going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ when he judges us? We're going to have... Mike alluded to this in the opening. We're actually going to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. You have to have this. Skip down to verse 28. Look down at verse 28. For we hold. This is God's word. This is what God says. This is what God is telling us. For we hold, we conclude, we believe that one, a person is justified, declared righteous by God. How? By faith. By faith. Apart. From works of the law. Over here is the works of the law. God has these Ten Commandments and a lot more. And if I just do them, no, I've already blown that. So I can't keep the law. That will not save me. So he says the way to be justified is actually by faith, just believing, only believing, apart from the works of the law. Faith in what? Go back to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here's what God says. So we're moving to our second thought here. Watch. God's, the question is, are you going to be like a child? Have you ever had a day in your life where you're like a little child and you've understood what God says because the heavenly father, the spiritual parent of all who are going to end up in heaven says, has declared, here's what he says, the only way to get to heaven is by forsaking believing yourself and putting your full faith and trust in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where you see the cross of Jesus as sufficient to pay for all of your sins because it is sufficient. If you believe that, then you get to enter the kingdom. But if any part of your mind thinks you got to do more than just put your faith in Jesus on the cross. His death is not sufficient to pay for all sins. I need to bring something to it. Then you cannot be saved. You have to be like a little child and realize, I'm just a taker. And I believe. 
This is what God says. I'm going with what God says, not what my twisted, perverted, damning, default mindset tells me that I have to do it. I have to forsake that and be like a child and believe what God says. Secondly, write this down. This is still under our first thought. Not only do we have to be like a child to be saved, but really the main thought this morning is we have to be like a child to be great. We have to be like a child to be great. And that's verse 4. Verse 2, calling him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. That's the answer to your question. So if you are wondering, who is going to be the greatest when we get there? There's the answer to the question. Jesus says, little child, little two, three, four year, take a look. That's what greatness looks like. That's the formula. Right there's the standard. So y'all help me out. Let's assume that everybody's present in the room. How many people in this room would have at one time or another had a crowd of people looking at them in amazement, astonishment, and wonder and would have thought of them as a great person? Here's my question again. How many people in this room this day would have had at some point or another a group of people staring at them, looking at them with wonder and amazement, thinking they are great? How many in that room would have fit that category? How many? I'm looking for a specific number. I haven't heard what I think yet. We know there's one. Is there more? How many? I still haven't heard it. Come on. I'm going to... We'll edit that little silent section out of our video because it is kind of awkward. Uh, can I propose to you there are 13 people that are in this room that at one time or another would have had... Raise your hand if you did say 13. Anybody? Okay. Daniel, you got I didn't hear you. You got to speak up. Uh, and Kimberly, was your hand up too? You said, Jeff, where do you get that from? How many people in this room have cast out devils? How many people in this room have healed people of diseases? You got to know if that happened that there are people uneducated or whatnot, that stood there and watched that and like, you say, wait, really? All of the disciples have been used to do that. And of course, they drew their power from the Lord Jesus Christ. The room is filled with people that others would have said, you're great. And that's probably why they're arguing among themselves. I'm great. Well, I've done that and I've done it. Well, you did do that. But remember the other day, and I did this many people. How many people did you? And they're all caught up in their own ability. Who doesn't look great in the room? The little boy. He looks the least great in the room. So I think the point the Lord is making, guys, listen, don't go by appearances on earth. They're very misleading. God will not be fooled. God will not be fooled. There are great people that you don't yet realize are great, and there are people you think are great that are not great. Don't go by appearances on earth. Notice verse number four. Look at it. Whoever humbles himself, like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Whoever humbles himself, what does that mean? I'm going to offer two thoughts to you. Write this down. The idea of humbling himself, this is what we're supposed to do. You say, if you have any inkling thought, well, if in God's economy, whatever he wants me to do, I want to fulfill what he wants me to do, and I'll leave that in his hands, then he's calling us today to humble ourselves. What does that mean? To humble ourselves is not just to get mental victory over our selfish desire for glory. It is not just to get mental victory over our selfish. I used to think that was heavy on the males side because males really seek to be the hero 
But Hollywood, this last two or three years, is exposing me that apparently this is prevalent enough among women in our society that they're making all the new heroes in the movies are all women, whether it be superheroes or war or police or detectives, whatever it is. So where I grew up as a little boy, I could, I could go back if it still stood there. It's not there anymore. I remember the little fake leather couch that we used to have, and my mom would be going around the house doing things, working. My brother's off to school. My sister's off to school. My dad's out working, and I was hiding behind the little leather brown couch, and I was doing cowboys and Indians, and I was always a cowboy, not realizing I was actually probably more Indian than I was cowboy, but boy, I was cowboys and Indians, and I, man, I could just take all these shots, but boy, I could just handle it. Somehow, I just kept living through it. Yeah, that's in all of you in some form or another. Now, you may not have done cowboys and Indians like I did. But you got something in there. You want to be the hero. So what the Lord is saying is we must humble ourselves and not just get victory, mental victory over our craving and desire for glory. But ultimately what he's saying is it must actually be us taking the low position of a child. Let's write that down. It's not just mental victory where I have internal humility Ultimately, it should lead, and what he's calling for is we must take the low position of the child. And in the next little bit is where it will begin to get uncomfortable for us. What would taking, I'm talking about like physically, externally, positively, proactively, Taking the low position, you say, I can't make myself small again. What does this even mean? The child realizes they're the least significant person in the room. All these guys are bigger than me. All these guys are great. They walk around. Everybody stares at me. No one stares at me when I'm walking through town. Everybody stares at them. This little child knows they're the least significant person. The Lord is saying, you want to be great? You better become like them. You better see yourself as insignificant. But then it's not just internal. It must come out externally. What would that look like? I told you I needed to borrow one more time. Again, not contradicting Matthew, complimenting Matthew. Flip back over to Mark 9. Back to Mark 9 because he's going to show us one more thing here. Look at Mark 9, verse 35. What would this internal humility look like if we were to proactively take the the lower estate of the child, the low position? What would it look like? So, Grace, I'm going to ask you, each individual one of us, hear what the Lord says in Mark 9, 35. He sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, yeah, do you want to be great? You want to be first? He must be last of all and servant of all. Servant. It's inside, but it has to come outside. Take this note. In Mark 9, 35, Jesus is saying that the main expression of humility that he expects to see is service to others. Service to others. We must serve other people. Borrowing again from John Piper, he spells that out. So in a moment, I'll be to that note, and it'll be up in a few moments. Don't worry about it yet. Just hear it first. So the Lord is saying, you want to be great? You want to be first? Fellas, what you have to do is not only get victory inside over your cravings for glory and greatness. You must actually take the low position of service. Piper writes the following. He says, in Jesus' teaching, there's a very close connection between humility and servanthood. Look at my hands. Watch this. He says, there's a very close connection between humility and servanthood. He writes, now hear it first. 
To be humble is to be a servant. Don't worry about writing it. Watch. To be humble. So he says a very close connection. Very close. To be humble is to be a servant. But he writes, they're not the same thing. To be humble is to be a servant, but they're not the same thing. Why would he say they're not the same thing? If he just said to be humble is to be a, ser- is to be a servant. Why would he say, watch my hands. I'm going to treat them like dominoes. Humility, when it's in place, humility leads to servanthood. Off you go serving. Humility's in place. It leads to servanthood. And you serve. You do service. Why would he say they're not the same thing? Here's why. Because humble people serve, but not all who serve are automatically humble. So it doesn't have to go both ways. There's a lot of people who are serving and they're doing it to be seen or they're doing it bitterly out of duty or guilt. Now let's write his quote. To be humble is to be a servant. They're not the same thing, but humility leads to joyful readiness to do lowly service. When humility is really in us and the Lord is ultimately calling for humility, but he's calling for a humility that is willing to do lowly service. Let it come out. If it's real, it will come out. It must come out. You'll know it's coming out when it is leading you to do lowly service, humble service, out of the public view, hard service. Like, that's not my favorite thing. Let me tell you guys about how it was when I was growing up in my house. Last week I used the word microculture, and I shared how my rearing was different from Deanna's, and it was different from a lot of you guys. My dad started a little construction company in western North Carolina the year before I was born. He started that in 1969. I was born in 70. So here's how that fleshed out in real, real life in our house. When my dad said, dig a ditch or go down the field and split wood or carry wood up, put it on the porch or roll it up in the wheelbarrow and stack it on the porch or get it in from the porch into the house so we can burn it to heat the house. Or when he said rake around the dogs, and some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about rake around the dogs? Well, we, had, we always had like 15 to 20 bear dogs and coon dogs. And so their houses would be half submerged into the earth and would have a little water bucket everywhere. So when he says go water the dogs and go feed the dogs or rake around the dogs, you know, they would be under shade and they'd have a, a chain and they'd have a nice little extended area, but they don't have a bathroom and so they got to go to the bathroom and eventually that stuff needs raked and shoveled and hauled off. So here's the thing. When my dad, whether on a job site, says to me and Russell, you boys go dig a ditch or go down there and split some wood and bring it up to the porch or, again, rake around the dogs, we did it. Why? There was no thought in my mind about status consciousness. Like, ooh, time out. I don't do raking of poop. <laughs> I don't do that. I don't split wood. I don't dig ditches. Guys, I'm going to tell you, I've been on job sites that my, my dad's company was working at, and I felt before that he had guys working for him that were very much let it be known, I operate equipment. I don't do that. But that never flew for Russell and Jeff Bartlett. You'd almost say, oh, Russell and Jeff got by with a lot. No, 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 no. If no one else did it, Russell and Jeff were told, and we understood, oh, the status, we're at the bottom, that is at the top. You just do it. You just do it. My brother and I, I guess you could say, like, we're co-vice presidents of the MIH department. Make it happen. 
They might not do it. You get down there and do it. But we're going to get sewage on it. Make it happen. Get down there and pump that stuff out. Okay. We're going to go home dirty today. Make it happen. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Do you have a level of humility that says, whatever the Lord says, that's what I'm going to do? Several years ago, when I was still coaching basketball, I almost lost one of my two best players, two most talented players, right at the start of the season, right out of the gate. We had tryouts. Next day, I posted my 12 names in the morning. Those 12 came to practice. I think it was the first full practice, if not the second full practice. We gave out uniforms. They now know they're on the team, gave out uniforms. I named the captains. Off we went. Had a good practice. You guys go home. We'll hit it again tomorrow. That night, I got a phone call from one of the young men's fathers, and he was upset. He wasn't, you know, you know angry sounding. He was very calm and cordial, very respectful. We had a very respectful conversation. But he was disagreeing with me because his son was not one of the captains. And I let him know, like, oh, well, let me explain that. What I do is I always use my seniors as my captains. So he's not a senior. It's nothing against him. And he then disagreed with me and let me know, yeah, but my son is, is as talented as anyone. He's probably the most talented person on that team. And I'm like, well, yes, sir, you're probably right on that. And he really was. He was the most talented player on the team. But I said, but I just use my seniors. Listen, I said, in my mind, the way I use my captains, it's not about who's the most talented. I tell my captains, you're the chief servants of the team. So there's a mindset in some people's eyes in our little world, right, little, little Christian school world of our teams, that the captains get their picture in the yearbook and the captains get to be the first ones to come out of the tunnel with the ball when we're doing layup line. And I guess there's a level of glory to that. I looked at captains as... If, if we're having practice, you need to get there a little bit early and sweep the floor if I haven't already done it. And if I don't already have the basketball set out, you need to get the basketball set out. Make sure that they're pumped up because there's no heat back there and it got cold last night in the wintertime. And the ball needs to be dropped from this area and it needs to bounce up to about right here. And you boys need to make sure that that's out. This is what captains do. We're getting ready to do a weight game. You boys make sure we've got our bags that have the basketballs in it and all our water bottles and get all those things. Make sure everybody has everything they need. And you kind of are the police of the group. That's what I look at captains. And the dad was like, well, no, no, my son's the most talented. And he eventually gave me an ultimatum. He said, if I don't appoint his son as the captain, he's not going to play ball for me. And I'm like, God, I think we've got a good team. Don't do this. And it really put me in a difficult spot. But I finally concluded I'm not going to yield to this. Like, I'm going to stick to my principles, and I'm going to hate to use this young, young man. And so this is where we left. He said, well, if he's not captain, he's not going to play. And I said, well, I'll let you guys sleep on it tonight. If he's not going to play, just have him bring his bag and uniform back tomorrow morning at Bible class, and there'll be no hard feelings, and I'm still going to love him, and I hope he'll love me, and we'll move on from there. All right, so number th oh, wait, I guess I better tell you what happened. <laughs> so the next morning, the young man came to Bible class, and he took Bible notes, and he left, and he showed up to the second practice, and he stayed on the team, and we won the state championship, and he led us in scoring. And he was perhaps our best or at least tied for our best player that year. I wanted him to understand, you don't need a title to be great. And he was great on our team. And he did a, and to this day, I love that. He's a man now. He's a, he's a man. And I love him, and i got to believe he loves me. And I hope that he learned that day a lesson. You don't need a title to be great. Jesus says thus, turn and humble yourselves.
Everybody listen. Stop being concerned with your greatness. Stop being concerned with your titles. Guys, Christ is telling us, keep your focus on me. Be willing to do any of the jobs that I say to do, whatever they may. No job is beneath you. We could even say it this way. If there's no outward service, there's no outward service, it's because there's no inward humility. Everybody listen. Grace view, think about yourself. Evaluate yourself. If there's no outward service going on, it's because there's no inward humility. When the inward humility is there, you're going to serve. And you're not going to pick and choose and say, oh, I don't do that, and that's too difficult, and that's too dirty, and that's beneath me. Which leads us to verse 5. Whoever receives one of these, one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives one such child, you have to become like a child to even go to heaven. You have to become like a child to be great. You have to have humility. You have to take the lowly position. It's not just an internal thing. It has to come out in the form of service. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Number 3 this morning, Jesus calls us to receive his children. Jesus calls us to receive his children. So I'm a little bit of a dilemma. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child. So we know he has a little two, three, four-year-old. He is no longer talking about that specific child. Hey, anybody who ever does anything good for Peter's little son, I take it favorably, and I'm going to bless him. No, he's not talking about that specific child. He's talking about one such child. What does that mean? Who, is, who are these people? What category of people is this? I'm going to propose to you that that stands for two categories of people. Number one, I take it very literally. Whoever receives one such child. You want to be great? You have to take the low position, see yourself as insignificant. It should come out when we put what Mark says in there. We know that it will show itself in the act of service. One of the ways you'll know that you have internal humility is you're willing to minister even to little children. You'll even minister to little children. Write this down. Why? Christ places a premium on bringing children to him. Christ places a premium on bringing little bitty children to him, teaching them, ministering to them. And this causes me to conclude a few things. Verse 5, the Lord is clearly, as I read it over and over, the Lord is clearly endorsing and even calling. You may sit there and say there's no direct demand. I say you read it in the whole context and the tone and the words I'm choosing fit. The Lord is clearly endorsing and calling for ministry to his little ones. But he's doing it with a tone of blessing. That's why I alluded to what Mark says earlier. Mark says, not only does he say, you receive them, Jesus says, you receive me, but you also receive him who sent me. Everything's all connected. By receiving them, you're receiving me and him who sent me. So the Lord is saying, I'm endorsing this, I'm calling for this, this is what I'm going to bless. There are people who are forfeiting blessings of Jesus because they refuse to do certain types of ministry. Like what? There are some who could... By could, I mean they are physically able, they are legally able, they are properly. So you take that for what it means. There may be situations where it's not proper. There are situations where it might not be legal, right? I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about people who physically, legally, properly are fully able and capable to minister to little children, but refuse to do that. They won't minister to them and teach them and work with them. 
And because of that, they're losing blessing from the Lord. I think what he's saying is, but the greatest in the kingdom never look at children's work as something that's beneath them or something that's behind them. They're fully capable, able, physically, legally, properly. And so the great ones the Lord's saying, they don't think anything about it. They just jump in and start working because this is where the need is. Let me say it slightly stronger one more time and you'll forgive me if you need to forgive me. To be fully able to serve children and bring them to Christ but to refuse to do so because it's in your mind, if you really peel away, this is where you have to ask yourself, that's beneath me. That's behind me. To take that mindset is to ignore Jesus' desire in verse number 5 and to be far from greatness as he's defined it in verses 3 and 4. And you may be sitting here and say, Jeff, now time out. It's not easy. I know it's not easy. No, Jeff, it's difficult. You're the longest-winded preacher in the county. I dare say you are 100% right, by, by far, easily. I told our director of missions the other day, we had lunch, and I alluded something. I brought up, I said, oh, yeah, I, said, I, I, I preach over an hour. And he chuckled, and I said, he said, you're serious? I said, oh, I'm serious. And they still come. I said, some of them still come. <laughs> you said, Jeff, it's hard work. Write this down. Though hard work, the humble person of verse 3 and 4 accepts the difficulty of serving children. Why? Because they realize it's a worthy investment. Why is it a worthy investment? I'm going to fly through some reasons you'll not see on the screen, but it's a worthy investment. These people are like, the Lord calls for it. He's very clearly endorsing and calling for ministry to little children. Whoever receives one such child in my name receiving me. He's calling for that. We know there's another occasion where he says, hey, whoa, don't you stop the little children from coming to me. You bring them to me. And the idea of welcoming, receiving, means to welcome and receive them. Why do these people realize this is such a worthy investment? I'll give you four reasons. Jesus values it, number one. Number two, children are often the most fruitful ministry in a whole church. Raise your hand if you were born again before or by or before age 12. Would you raise your hand? Knowing what I was going to preach on today, I was sitting here as our worship team was up here, and I was looking at these three young people singing, and I was thinking, I almost did, but I didn't want to. I almost thought, when, how old were you, and how old were you, and how old were you? Somebody was working and pouring truth into them. Whether it ended up culminating at home or not, I know that all three of them had multiple people pouring truth and ministering to them. Why? Why is it such a worthy? Listen, because young people, little children, have most of their life left to live for Christ. This is an awesome investment. I'm going to give you one more. Because children can be spared from a life of sin. I heard something the other day, and I get the total tone. I totally get what it was saying, and they were promoting. But in my heart, I couldn't sign off on it totally. I was exposed to a ministry that is about helping adults that have made bad decisions and have paid heavy prices and, and ministering to them and often leading them to Christ. And the comment was made that that ministry is the most important one in the county. And in my heart, I thought it's as important as any ministry in the county, but I wouldn't put it as the most important one. You say, Jeff, why not? Y'all finish this for me. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of what? cure so 
though we love those and want to support that and be part of that ministry that is helping to bring the cure of the Lord Jesus Christ into adults who have made horrible decisions and paid prices and extended tragedy often around the family, though that is true. What if we just prevent that from ever happening by teaching and training young people so that they don't actually live that kind of life? I say this ministry is equally as valuable as the other. Give me an ounce of prevention over a pound of cure. We want the pound of cure, but the other is not a lesser ministry. One more thought out of verse 5 on this one, and then I'm going to begin to wrap up. Notice I said begin to wrap up. All right, watch. Look at, look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name, my name receives me. If you're taking notes, I'm just going to throw it out. I've got to keep moving. Jesus calls for humble people to serve children with a certain attitude. So those of you who do serve children, do it with this attitude. Because this is what the Lord, look at verse 5. Whoever receives such, one such child in my name receives me. If they do it in my name, they're receiving the child, they're receiving me. So I think what the Lord is actually calling is for humble people to serve children with a specific attitude that their work, your work, is an act, watch, it's an act of worship. Lord, I'm doing this for these little knuckleheads, but I, and it's hard and it's difficult, but I'm going to embrace it, and I'm wore out after it, but I'm doing it as an act of worship to you, as an act of obedience to you, and as an act of service as if I'm doing it to you. And the Lord is saying, you do that for them, and I receive it as if it was done for me. So you go down that hallway and you find these little kids and you treat them as though they are Jesus when he was a little boy. And the Lord says, you do my little ones like that. I'm going to see it and I'm going to remember it and I'm going to bless it. I'm going to put my favor upon it. So let me just warn you. Two things about working with little children, two things are like 99.9% true, 99.9% of the time. You say, what is it? They're not going to pay you back. And they're not going to remember to say thank you. They're not going to come. So don't launch down there or wherever you end up doing it. They're not going to come in with a Brewster's card. Oh, by the way, thanks. I got my, my um, allowance money and I thought of you. I know you come down here every few weeks and thank you. Go get yourself an ice cream tonight. They're not going to do it. They're not going to say thank you. But you know the wonderful thing about that? That's fine because that just helps us make sure that our motives are on point and not skewed. We don't need thank yous. We're not doing it for earthly gain. We're doing it for the Lord. We're doing it as an act of worship, obedience, and service to the Lord, knowing that God ultimately remembers. You say, Jeff, I thought you said this one such child in verse 5 stands for two types of people. Write this one down as well. I want to propose this should become more clear next week. Next week, we're going to see a phrase in verse 6, which is not on our text this week. Verse 6 is going to say, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. One of these little, if I I catch it, this is subtle. So you have literal little children, literal little children, and then you have those who are like little children who believe in me. And so what he's saying in verse 5, because they're connected, anybody who ministers to those who are like little children, because they, here's all he's saying, 
The people who have done what verse 4, what verse 3 and 4 calls for, and they actually enter the kingdom, and they're now the children of God, just as we would say that the Lord places a premium on ministry to literal children. Now write this thought down. Verse 5 means that Christ also places a high value on God's spiritual children. And he places a high value when those who are more mature in Christ actually invest their time and their energy and their efforts and their talents and their resources and their spiritual gifts to pour their life into new believers, into younger-than-them believers, helping them. I think this is a long note. Helping them ultimately to walk by faith in the promises of God the Father. So that was a lot. So let me just touch on it briefly. Not only is the Lord calling us to minister to little children, literally, but he's saying if you are more mature in Christ than a new believer or a younger believer in the faith, God delights when that more mature Christian pours their life and their energy and their resources and their time and their talents and their spiritual gifting into new or younger believers, helping them to learn the promises of God. Hey, guys, listen. I got saved in 1979, and whenever you got saved, we all started at the same spot. We knew enough to get saved, but we don't know a lot about the promises of God. Somebody's got to tell us, and so we'll learn the knowledge of the Son of God, and then we need to spend time around them so that they teach us now, here's how you put that into your life. So this morning I ask you this. Here's what I'm asking you. As you look at your life, can you honestly say, I spend time ministering to little children, and I spend time doing the dirty work sometimes that's out of public view, and I just meet with maybe one-on-one or a little small group, and I invest my life into those who are younger than I am in the faith, trying to build up their faith. So as I, I'm going to ask you, you're an 18. I'm briefly going to hit. I'm just, it's a closing, literally. Flip over to chapter 23, and I'm going to read a verse, two verses there, and then we'll be done this morning. And as you're flipping to Matthew 23, here's what I concluded. It seems the Lord's point is that the truly greatest people are the people who are not concerned about being great. That's the greatest people. Who are going to be the greatest? The ones who aren't concerned about being great. Why aren't they concerned about being great? They just honestly got, they don't see themselves as great. And even more so, they're so caught up in the needs of other people. They just want to serve and meet the needs of other people. And then they're going to be surprised when they get to heaven. And the Lord's like, by the way, you have this position. Like, how did that happen? I didn't even have hardly a title down there yet, but you were so faithful. So humbly serving, you have this position. Wow. They're going to be surprised by it. It's like Watchman Nee once said, genuine humility is unconscious. Matthew 23, look at verse 11. This is our closing. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. That's the greatest. Verse 12 always challenges me. Whoever, this is a promise, this is a fact, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the action is done to the person. The person is not doing the second action. Watch. Whoever, anybody in this room, if you exalt yourself in your mind and in your deeds, I think I'm above that, and therefore I'm not going to do that. If you exalt yourself, then the Lord is saying in due time, he will humble you. He will bring you down. 
whether this life or the next, he will lower you. But if you will humble yourself in this life, mentally humble yourself and take the lowly position of servant, then the Lord promises whether in this life and certainly in time to come, then he will exalt you and it will be a pleasant surprise. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Jesus promises whatever position we take in this life, let this sink in. Whatever position you take in this life, Jesus promises he's going to reverse it in the next life. If you exalt yourself in your mind and in your actions or your non-actions, the Lord is just going to reverse that in the life to come. But he promises if you'll humble yourself, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So it's a matter of faith. It goes back. Do you believe your spiritual parent, which is God, the Father? God is telling us, I'm going to reverse the position you take toward yourself, how you correlate and interact with others. Do you see yourself above others and above certain activity or do you just roll up your sleeves and jump in and serve because there's a true, genuine, hidden humility inside of you? If you really believe Jesus, if you really believe what he says in Matthew 23, then it's going to affect how you live. Just before I pray, I have to ask us. I dare say, I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but I dare say everyone in here this morning if I was to have a conversation with you, you probably assume you're going to heaven. You assume you're going to heaven. You assume it's going to be so great. It's going to be wonderful. It's fun, peace, joy, bliss. You assume that. Can I challenge you what the Lord said in verse 3? Before you just assume how great heaven is, be honest, have you ever had a time in your life where you have realized you were spiritually bankrupt so much that you abandoned the thought that you can bring anything to the equation of helping yourself get saved? Have you ever hit a point where you have had that conversation with God, God, all I am bringing is sin. I have no spiritual resources, assets, or virtues to bring to this. I have nothing. And has that driven you to trust Jesus only? So I'm going to ask you a specific question, very specific. Have you believed God's promise? If you're sitting here this morning and say, oh, Jeff, I know I'm going to heaven. I have a Bible reason. I believe God's promise. I'm going to ask you right now. You say, Jeff, I don't know the reference, but I know the passage of Scripture that I am trusting. What verse, what passage of Scripture are you trusting? We looked at one in Romans. What passage are you trusting that makes you think, oh, I am going to heaven? And then I must ask this. Christian, is your life marked by the primary sign of humility? Is your life marked by servanthood? Like, make yourself answer that question. Is my life marked by servanthood? If you're saying in your mind, by God's grace, yes, my life, then I'm going to ask you this. How do you serve? Where do you serve? Who do you serve? When do you serve? Be specific. If I could ask it this way, do you receive and welcome children 
for Christ and minister to them in a specific way. And I'll ask, do you invest? You say, oh, I'm a Christian. I've been saved all these years. Do you invest your life and what the Lord has shown you in your Christian walk into the lives of new believers or younger believers so that they can grow in their faith and their walk in the knowledge of God's promises? Do you have specific ways you are serving even when nobody knows it? If you believe Jesus is telling the truth, then we will serve. And it may be that someone needs to get up this morning when this is over and go have a talk with somebody and say, hey, I got to get involved. I want this blessing. And the Lord has spoken to me that I need to take the focus off myself and put it on Him and obediently serve those that He delights in. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these folks' attention this morning to Your Word. Lord, thank You for what you've shown me this week. I pray that you would continue to drill this truth deep into us. Lord, may we abandon thoughts of our own greatness. May we not crave that. May we be so focused on you and your greatness, Lord, that we're not worried about titles and being seen, being recognized, being rewarded by mankind. Lord, I pray that we would just be so in love with you and have a burden for souls and little children, new believers and lost people, that we just spend our lives serving them so that eternity even catches us by a pleasant surprise and we find that you smile at us. And then, Lord, we'll leave who is great in your hands. Father, I pray that we would be humble people and let it be evident. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Hopefully get a day off tomorrow and remember those who have served our country in that way. Thank you.